Well, today we continue our study in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 9 is where we are this morning. Now, in 1 Corinthians, Paul has been addressing certain sin that has arisen in the church there in Corinth. Uh, back in verse, or chapters 5 and 6, Paul has been dealing with the negative side of, of sexual ethics. Uh, there's some problems there in the church. Corinth uh, in the first century was in a very... Uh, very sinful society. Uh, they had a very negative sex ethic within the city itself. And so they, it was very perverted. It, it was not what we would call a biblical sex ethic, to, to say the least. And a lot of the people in the church, they were coming out of that kind of, of a society. They were very secular themselves, and they have been called by the gospel into the kingdom of God and to change their, their ethics, their sexual ethics. But some of them ha are having trouble doing that. Some of them are still in this mindset that, uh, uh, hey, we have sexual freedom, and so just do whatever. Whatever feels good, do it. And so Paul has been addressing that. And as he has been addressing that, he has, has come down to this prohibition that we saw a few weeks back. Flee sexual immorality. Flee sexual sin. Get away from it. Stay away from it. Do whatever you can to get out of the grip of sexual immorality, sexual temptation. Flee from it. Get away from it. Now, that's good and that's wonderful. But the problem that we have, if we leave it there, if we just stop with that, is that we might begin to think, well, all, sin, all sex is bad. Sex itself is, is not a good thing. It's a bad thing. And that's what we see oftentimes happening in the church. A lot of times in the church, people come up with this mentality, this idea that sex itself is bad, so you should just avoid it at all costs. Now, we may not say that in the church today, we may say that sex is a good thing, but, but we, in our actions, we say that. Because in church, we don't like to talk about sex. We don't like to talk about it. That's not something that a preacher should be preaching. A preacher shouldn't preach about sex on Sunday morning. That's just a no-no. We shouldn't talk about it. But the problem is God's Word talks about it. It addresses it. And so we can't go there. We say sex is bad because we avoid it. We avoid the conversation at all costs. Parents don't like to talk to their kids about sex. Christian parents, you don't like to talk to your kids about sex. But let me tell you, if you don't talk to your kids about sex, somebody's talking to them about sex. And what they're feeding your kids is a very secularist, perverted view of sex. So Christian parents, you need to be talking about sex to your, your kids. You need to be telling them. You need to be filling them with a biblical sexual ethic Instead of allowing the school system or their peers to feed them or our society as a whole, feed them a secular, perverted sexual ethic. Church, we've got to talk about sex. We've got to address sex from a biblical standpoint. We need to see that sex is good as it is given by God, but we have to define it in, define it in such a way that honors God and glorifies God. You see, we, we have this tendency to either get to that, you know, the pendulum I talked about a couple of weeks ago. You either go to this side where it's, you know, sexual liberty, sexual freedom, free sex, sex uh, uh, free love, all of that kind of mentality, or, or you get that no sex at all. But we need to find that balance 
where we see the goodness in sex, sex as a gift from God and honored in such a way that would be pleasing and glorifying to God. That's what Paul came down to at the end of, of chapter, uh, chapter six there. Honor God with your bodies, he said. Honor God through your sexual relationship, through sexual intimacy, by conducting it in such a way that is pleasing to God. And so we see that sex can actually be holy. That's why I entitled today's message, Holy Sex. It's not to, to grab your attention or anything, but sex can be holy. Sex can be holy. Holy sex honors God's design for sex. Holy sex honors God's design for sex. You can glorify and honor God through sex as long as you hold it in the bounds of, of the purpose that God created it for. He gave it to us for. So today, I want you to, to, to leave today, to finish up today with an appreciation for sex as a gift from God and understand the boundaries in which God has fixed for sex. So we're going to look at uh, sexual ethics, a biblical uh, standpoint of sexual ethics today. So I want to, to first start by reading our text 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 1, we're looking at verses 1 through 9. So follow along with me if you, you can there. Now concerning the matter about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, Paul is addressing a question that has, has been given him by the church at Corinth. Oh, let me stop. Amen. May the Lord add blessings to the reading of his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And may he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Amen. Uh, I forgot that a few times, and some people pointed that out, that I forgot that a few times. So I need to make sure I state that uh, here. But now we look at this, as we look at this, Paul is addressing uh, an issue that has arisen. So uh, he has heard certain things that's going on in Corinth and he's writing to address those certain things that he's heard about. But also the church there in Corinth has written him and, and they've got some questions, some things that have arisen that they've got concern about. And so they have written him and they've asked him these questions to address these these questions. And so it does seem like that there there is that group that, you know, the one group in the church, there's there's, you know, sexual liberals and, and they're just anything 
everything kind of goes type mentality. We're in Christ and we're saved by grace. And so whatever we do uh, with the flesh is all right. And so they've swung to that end of the spectrum. But then again, you have these other guys over here on this other end and they say it is good for a man not to have sexual relationship relations with a woman. Literally, the, the Greek says a man should not touch a woman. And so they swung to this other extreme over here. And Paul says, no, 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 let's get it right. Let's get it right. Let's have balance here and let's see what God says about sex. Now, he does make that concession at the end. He, he makes that concession that uh, he wished that everybody could be like he was. Paul was single. And uh, he, he will later on, he will point out the benefits of singlehood. And so we'll talk about that in a few weeks. But he doesn't want to uh, denigrate the marriage relationship. He wants to uh, exalt it and he wants to bring out the benefits of marriage and having sex within marriage. So today we're going to focus on that. And today in this text, we're going to see four biblical principles of sex, four biblical principles concerning sex. We want to build a biblical sex ethic. So as we begin to look at the text, then the first thing that we see that sex must be covenantal. Sex must be covenantal. It, he, he addresses there, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Paul brings out the point that this is taking place within the covenant of marriage, the covenant of marriage. And I want to make that, that, uh, that clear, that it, this is a covenantal relationship. I, I wanted to state this in those terms, that it is covenantal and not just a commitment, because we can have, and we do hear people say, well, we, we're committed right? I'm in a committed relationship. And all that means is like you're, you're dating, right? But a committed relationship is not a covenantal relationship. It's not enough to just say, oh, I'm committed to you, baby, right? There needs to be a stronger bond there. There needs to be a covenant relationship that takes place. And, and it's only within the covenantal relationship of marriage that sex should be taking place. Sex is, is to be taking place in a covenantal relationship. And we see this when God first established marriage and built marriage, when he established the covenant of marriage back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Here we see the establishment of marriage. This is a God-given establishment. Marriage is God-given. It's not secular. Therefore, God decides, God determines the, the parameters of marriage. But here he says... Therefore, verse, uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, Therefore, a man shall leave his wife, excuse me, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They shall become one flesh. Now, I kind of like the, the King James wording here. The, the, in the marriage covenant, the man is to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, cleave to his wife. He's hold fast to cleave to her, to hold on to her. Uh, this is a, a special relationship that is being 
united together here in the covenant of marriage. There's a leaving of other familial relationships. There's a leaving of other familial relationships. There's a leaving of mother and father. And then there's this cleaving to one's spouse. A cleaving to, holding tight to. This is a relationship unlike any other relationship in a person's life. There is a leaving, leaving behind. You've been under your mom and dad's care. You've been cleaving to them. But now you're leaving that relationship and you're devoting yourself to your spouse. There's a cleaving there. In a marriage relationship, that cleaving means that there's no other relationship on earth more important than your spouse, your relationship with your spouse. Here's the new priority in the life of a person who is making this covenantal commitment to their spouse, whether man or woman, making that covenantal connection. That is, you're leaving all other relationships behind and you're cleaving to this one relationship. So here's the new priority on, on relationships when a husband and wife cleave to one another. There's God. That's number one. That's always number one. He's always number one in our relationships. Our relationship with God is first priority. But right under God, spouse. Spouse. And then comes the kids and mom and daddy and, and all of these other relationships. It's God and then spouse. There's a commitment. I am committed to this person. She is the most important person in my life. Under God, she is it, husbands. That's what a covenantal relationship looks like. There is a commitment to, to love and to hold until death do we part. There's an absolute commitment to the spouse. Not to friends. Friends aren't that their friends are never to come in between you and your spouse. Mama and daddy are never to come in between you and your spouse. It doesn't mean you don't love mom and daddy. It doesn't mean you don't have some good friends out there. But what it means is that she is number one, husbands. He is number one, wives. Your spouse is number one. She takes priority over any other relationships. That's what it means to leave and cleave. You, you set aside all other relationships and your priority is your spouse. That's a covenantal commitment. And once that, that bond is made, once that, that uh, oath to that person is made, that she's number one, that he's number one, then they become, the two become one flesh. The two then become one flesh. Now, we often think about the one flesh being that sexual relationship. And, and certainly that is when we talk about, especially in the Old Testament, uh, they used to talk about consummating the relationship, consummating the marriage. It was like in that moment, in that act of, of sexual intimacy, that's when the marriage was consummated. Uh, the bond, the oath was, was Clarified, it was strengthened, it was made sure in the consummation of the marriage. But there's something that takes place in, in sexual intercourse that is unlike any other activity that we do. Uh, sex is multi dimensional, it is multi dimensional. Of course, there's a, a union there 
in a physical sense. There's a physical union that takes place. The two become one flesh in a sense physically. But there's also a spiritual union that takes place. Uh, this kind of oneness, the two become one. Uh, that word there, that phrase is the same, uh, the same phrase that's used to talk about the oneness of God. We think about God existing in three persons, but he's one God. There's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they have the same essence. They are one. They are one God. Now, kind of a different sense, but kind of the same sense as well. Uh, that's what this oneness, this idea of oneness in the marriage relationship uh, kind of gets to. The two, the husband and the wife, they become one flesh. There's a, a new union that, that is there. And it's a spiritual union. It's a physical union and a spiritual union. They become spiritually connected, similar to, not exactly like, but similar to uh, the way God is one. He's three persons, but one. Now, now this union between husband and wife is they become one flesh. There's a spiritual connection, a new spiritual connection that takes place. And that is engaged in through sexual intercourse. So it is covenantal. There's a leaving and a cleaving. That person, that spouse becomes your new priority. And then it is united in a one flesh union. Dear young man, if you are not ready to commit yourself covenantally with that young woman, you are not ready to have sex. You are not ready to have sex. You are not looking to commit yourself to her. You're simply looking for your own gratification. You're using her as a sex object, period. Only when you enter in a covenant relationship with your wife are you ready to have sex with her. Sex must take place within a covenant relationship within the covenant of marriage, period. All other sex is out of bounds. All other sexual activity is out of bounds. God intended sex to be taking place within the covenant of marriage. Second, sex must be complementary. Sex must be complementary. That is that uh, we're made for one another, right? There, there's a, a husband and a wife. Paul talks about that. He makes this distinction. A man should have his own wife. A woman should have her own husband. There's a man and there's a woman. There's a complementary relationship that, it, it, that comes together, that is united. There are, are differences between the two. But these differences complement one another. We see this again in Genesis chapter 2. Go up a few verses there before we get to the covenant of marriage. In Genesis chapter 2 verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. So at this point, God has just created Adam and Eve hasn't come on the scene yet. So he says, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. 
And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So God parades all of creation, all of the animals, all the birds, all of the all the beasts of the field. He prays them before Adam. And as Adam names every beast, he looks at all of them and there's not a helper fit for him. There's no one who compliments him. No one whom he can relate to. And so what does God do? So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God uh, had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So God looked at Adam and said, you need a helper. It's not right that you should be alone. You need a helper fit for you, a helper who will compliment you, who will make you whole. He wasn't whole. He needed something more. And so God created the woman. A woman who is absolutely different. She is physically different, right? She is physically different. She is psychologically different. But in the, the union between a man and a woman, there are those, those physical uh, compliments. There's, uh, they are physically complementary. They are physically complementary. Uh, they, they have different physical characteristics that fit together, and I'm going to leave it at that. Right? They are physically complementary, but they're, they're also psychologically complementary. They're psychologically complementary. Uh, men and women think differently. Men and women feel differently. We have different kinds of emotions. We respond differently to different situations. We are different. And God created man and men and women to be different. There's a purpose in that. Now, in our secular society, we want to this, our secular society wants to bring that down and make everybody, you know, equal. Right. And, and we don't argue that everybody is equal. Men and women are equal in dignity. Right. We are equal in dignity, but we're not the same. And we shouldn't try to, to make men and women to be the same. We're not the same. Secular society wants to, to do away with differences, to level the ball field, if you will. That's kind of terminology our, our society uses. Let's bring, let's do away with all the differences. Let's make men and women absolutely the same. Well, see, that does away with God's purposes. God didn't make men and women the same. He made men and women different and different for a purpose. Because men compliment women and women compliment men. I praise God that my wife is nothing like me. She is nothing like me. We are absolutely total opposite people. In, in every sense of the term, we are opposites. But you know what? That makes us a good team. 
That makes us a good team. Uh, we We are better together than we are apart. Because God has put us together, He has brought us together as different people, different individuals to make one team. We complement one another. We complement one another. And that's the way it's supposed to be within the marriage relationship. There are supposed to be differences. God created us to be different. But those those differences complement one another And it's only when those differences come together that we begin to to really see that that perfect picture, that beautiful picture. Since we've been staying at home, uh, my wife has been putting together a lot of of puzzles. That's that's kind of her thing. She loves to put together puzzles, and she's put together several of them. Now imagine if she went out and she bought a puzzle, and she got them home, and all the pieces were the same. She opened the box and every piece was identical. What use would that be? None of the the pieces would fit together. They would be absolutely useless. It would be a useless box of identical puzzle piece parts, right? It would be useless. But when she pulls out a puzzle and all of these parts are different, but they complement one another, they fit together. When she fits them all together with all their complementary parts, then what she has is a beautiful picture. That's how it is in the bond of marriage. God brings two different people with different parts, with different emotions, with different kind of uh, ways of thinking, and he puts them together to make one beautiful picture. And it's only in that that sex is supposed to be taken supposed to take place. Holy sex is complementary sex. It complements. There's a complement of one to the other. So sex must be covenantal and it must be complementary. Third, sex must be sacrificial. Sex must be sacrificial. Going back over to uh, 1 Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians, looking at verse 3, we see here that uh, there's a sacrifice that takes place. Look at verses 3 and 4. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the the wife to her husband. Notice that word give. That's an imperative there. A husband is to give the wife her conjugal rights. To give her the duty that he has sworn to her. He's to give. It doesn't say take. Right? Paul doesn't say the man should take his conjugal rights from his wife. Nor does it say the wife should take her conjugal rights from the husband. See, that would be self-centered. And quite frankly, that's the way a lot of people approach a sexual relationship, even within marriage. I need what I need and I'm going to go get it. And and people become selfish in that, only concerned about what I need, not concerned about what my partner needs. And and that won't do for Paul. That won't do for, for God's way of doing things. No, the husband is to give to the wife and the wife is to give to the husband. There's this this selfless surrender that takes place one to another. It's a selfless surrender. I'm not worried about what I need. What do you need? 
What do you need from me? My concern is for you. See, that's the way biblical sex takes place, where one is more worried about what the other needs. So there's a a selfless surrender that takes place, but it's also a mutual surrender that takes place. Look at verse 4, and and verse 4 is absolutely revolutionary for first century Corinth, for first century period. Look at verse 4, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now, if Paul would have stopped right there, everybody in Corinth would have said, yep, that's right. Everybody throughout the, the Roman Empire said, yep, that's right. You're right, Paul. The woman does not have authority over her body. The man does, because that's the way people thought back in the first century, that the man is kind of the head of the household and, and the woman is kind of like property. She belongs to him. So her body is his. If he'd have stopped there, no big deal. Everybody said, amen. Right on, Paul. But Paul goes on. Man, I love this. This is revolutionary. And, and this is Christians, uh, Christianity's approach to sexual ethics. Likewise, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. You see, there's a mutual surrender that takes place here. The wife's body doesn't belong to her. It belongs to the husband. The husband's body doesn't belong to him. It belongs to the wife. There's a mutual surrendering. Uh, the man surrenders his rights to his wife and the wife surrenders her rights to the husband. There's a mutual surrendering of one another to, to each other. Husbands, you don't belong to yourself. You don't belong. You don't own your body. Your wife owns your body. And wives, you don't own your bodies. Your husbands own your body. It belongs to them. When you came together in the the covenant of marriage, you committed yourself to your spouse, period. So you give yourself to them wholly and fully. Uh, Now, I have facial hair. I have a a beard here. And I've had a beard for, uh, well, ever since I got out of the Marine Corps, I've had some kind of facial hair. And since I've been able to actually grow a beard, I've had a beard. And, uh, you know, I, I had a woman one time who, uh, a church lady, who just hated the beard. She hated the beard. She thought every man should have a clean, be clean cut and shaven all the time. And she, I mean, she just bugged me to death over it. You need to shave that stuff. You need to get that stuff off of your face. Only problem with that is my wife loves it. My wife loves my beard. She likes my beard. And I don't own this. This is her. So if she wants a beard, she gets a beard. I don't care what other women think, what other men think, or what anybody thinks. It belongs to her. So if she wants a beard, she gets a beard. And likewise, quite honestly, uh, I like my wife to have a slightly longer hair and it curly. So most of the time that you see my wife, she's going to have her hair down and it's going to be curly because I like that. And she wants to to please me. I want to please her. She wants to please me. There's this mutual surrendering to one another. And that's the way it should be in the marriage relationship across the board, not just when we're talking about sex, but when we're talking about the marriage relationship in general, there should be a mutual surrendering one to the other. That's how marriages work. That's how there's peace and harmony and love within a marriage when both spouse 
Both spouses surrender one to the other. In his book, True Sexual Morality, Recovering Biblical Standards for a Culture in Crisis, Daniel Heimbach uh, makes this point. He says, the more a couple focuses on pleasing each other, the more enjoyment each receives in return. And the more a person focuses on demanding his or her own satisfaction, the less satisfaction is possible. Self-centered, self-centeredness always destroys satisfaction, while unselfishness always makes it better. Holy sex is sacrificial. It is sacrificial. It is giving yourself to your spouse, focusing on them, seeking to please them. So sex must be covenantal, complementary, sacrificial. And finally, sex must be productive. Sex must be productive. Now, when we say that sex must be productive, of course, the the first place that we go to when we think about sex being productive is procreation. Right. Procreation. And certainly that is uh, one way in which sex is productive. We think back to creation when God uh, tells Adam and Eve, he says, now be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so that is definitely one way in which a sexual relationship can be productive. It can be productive by producing other little human beings to run around. And that's a wonderful way for sex to be productive. Uh, Children are a blessing from God. And so we should desire to have children when we're married. So uh, it can be fruitful. It can be productive through procreation. But uh, that's not the only way. That's not the only way that uh, sexual intercourse can be productive. Now, in, in past times, certainly there have been those who said that's the only way. It, it, it's procreation and that's it. In fact, I'm reminded of, of Augustine. Uh, he was one of the early church fathers and uh, he, he wrote a lot of great things. But Augustine, he kind of had this idea that the only way that sex was lawful was if it was for the purposes of procreation. Any other sexual activity, even in marriage, was off limits. It was immoral if it was not for the purposes of procreation. The only problem is that's not what the book says. That's not what the Bible says. In fact, Paul makes that absolutely clear in this passage. He began this whole thing by saying, because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And then he comes down here to the end and, and, and finishes this paragraph in a similar manner. Do not deprive one another. Don't hold back from one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. Notice there it says by agreement. Uh, There's a mutual agreement taking place. This is not one person saying we're done. Uh, This is by mutual agreement, a mutual agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. So uh, it's kind of like a fasting, if you will, fasting for a while to there's an issue coming up. There's there's something that's happening and we need to focus on this. So so let's agree to to abstain for a period of time to focus our prayers on, on this issue. So. You can agree, perhaps, for a limited time 
uh, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. And here's the purpose. So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So that Satan may not tempt you. So sex can be productive in that it, is, it produces protection. It produces protection from uh, temptation, sexual temptation. Now, I know this for men, especially men tend to be more sexually driven than women. And so men tend to, not always the case, but men tend to struggle with sexual temptation more than women. So women, wives, uh, you help your husband fight off temptation by having sexual relations with them. So many times, and I've heard this over and over throughout the years, uh, a lot of times sexual infidelity takes place, you know, when, when there's not stuff happening at home. And so a husband or a wife, they're, they're, they're not getting their, their needs, their relational needs met at home. And so they begin to, to stray. They begin to look outside the home and they begin to, to dive into sexual immorality. And so Paul makes that clear here, that uh, sexual intercourse within the marriage relationship protects us from temptation to sin. And that's a wonderful way in which sex becomes productive. It produces protection against temptation to sin. I'll add a third. It's not here in our text, but uh, here's a third way in which uh, sex can be productive, and that is it produces greater intimacy. It produces greater intimacy. We've already talked about how uh, the two becoming one flesh uh, is multidimensional. There's a, a physical and a spiritual connection that takes place there. Well, when, when that union takes place, boy, man, the intimacy begins to, to grow there and it begins to, to flourish in those types, kinds of relationships. Now, that's not the only way intimacy grows. I'm not saying that. I don't want to say that. There are other ways that intimacy grows by sharing with one another, by just being with one another, spending quality time with one another. But certainly, sex within a marriage helps intimacy. It grows intimacy. It produces uh, a greater depth of intimacy. So sex must be productive. Sex must be productive. Sex must be uh, covenantal. It must be complementary. It must be sacrificial. And it must be productive. So sex is a good gift from God. And we should never think of sex as a bad thing. In fact, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. When God gave sex as a good gift to be taken uh, place, to take place within the bonds of marriage, it is good. And we should never call it bad. To call it bad within the confines of marriage would be evil itself. So husbands and wives honor God with sexual intimacy. Enjoy one another. And apply these biblical principles to your own relationships and glorify God with your bodies through sexual intimacy with your spouse. Now, for some who are out there today listening in, uh, maybe, maybe you've never thought about sex this way. 
Maybe you've never understood these principles. Maybe you've been living in sexual immorality and you've thought nothing of it. You've been living in rebellion against God and you've thought nothing of it. Can I, ha- can I ask, maybe the reason you've been living in rebellion against God, sexually and otherwise, could it perhaps be because you don't have a relationship with Christ? Could it be that you're a sinner living in rebellion against God? But today you can surrender your life to Christ. You can surrender yourself to Him today. Christ died for your sins. And He was raised to prove your justification before before God. If you will trust in Jesus Christ, He will save you. And He will give you the power to live a pure life before God, a holy life before God, if you will only trust Him. Let me ask you, will you trust Him today? Will you trust in Jesus Christ? Will you surrender your life to Him today? That's where uh, biblical ethics, sexual and otherwise, begins. It begins by surrendering to God, surrendering to Christ, and trusting in Him. Will you trust Him today? You don't need to be here. You don't need to be in a church. You don't need to be anywhere in particular. You can start trusting in Him today if you'll just surrender your life to Him. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you. I just thank you, Lord, today for the wonderful gift that you've given us. You've given us sex as a gift to build intimacy within a marriage, to uh, enjoy one another. And we just thank you for that today. We don't want to to denigrate uh, what you have given us as a good gift. So, Lord, we thank you and we praise you. Lord, we, we see our culture around us and they don't buy into your sexual ethics. And they feed us a very perverted sexual ethic. But Lord, we need to understand what you define as good and perfect and right. And we need to live by that. We need to pursue sex in the way you have given it uh, to us and the bounds that you have set for us. And as long as we pursue it in that manner, Lord, it is good. And it is right, and we thank you for it. And may we glorify your name through it. But Lord, we just pray that you would forgive us of of our selfishness when when we approach it in a selfish manner. And pray, Lord, that you would change our hearts and change our minds, Lord, that we would surrender to your design and your will, even for sex. Now, Lord, I pray... I know this is a different message. I pray, Lord, today, maybe there's those out there who have never trusted you, never uh, known what it meant to obey you and to live in accordance to your will. Lord, I pray that you would touch their hearts today somehow, some way. Change their lives, Lord. Let them know Jesus. Let them trust in Jesus. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen.